There was no political or economic mileage from us in criticizing the Troika publicly. And, you know, our intention was obviously, you know, to use the, the goodwill and support that we could generate as a new government to try and improve, obviously, the deal to the greatest extent possible, but that we would do that behind the scenes. And uh, that in public we would be, you know, and the message to the markets would be very clear, which is, you know, we are delivering on the program and our, and our intention is obviously to fulfill the conditions and restore growth. Welcome back to In The Room, a series of interviews with people who witnessed and shaped the recent history of Europe, often but not always behind the scenes. My last three conversations were with former officials who managed Europe's sovereign debt crisis from the creditor's side. Today I'm turning the table and talking to someone who experienced the crisis from the debtor's point of view. From March 2011 until 2016, Andrew McDougall was the Irish government's head of programme implementation and chief economic advisor to the Taoiseach or Prime Minister, Enda Kenny. In November 2010, just four months before Kenny took office, Brian Cowan's Fianna Foyle government had lost access to the international debt market and was forced to request a bailout from the Eurozone and the International Monetary Fund. The near 70 billion euros they borrowed came with conditions, and it was Kenny, his chief economic advisor, and his finance minister, Michael Noonan, who had to implement them over the following three years. How that played out surprised everyone, as Portugal, Spain and Cyprus joined the list of countries applying structural adjustment programmes in return for cash, Ireland quickly turned into the model debtor, and this despite some very difficult negotiations over changes to the original programme. Now, these were very important at the time. For example, the state's annual repayments as part of the so-called promissory note scheme would use to cost 2% of national output. At the same time, it was slashing public spending, and the economy was growing just 1% on average. But today, these programmes and themes are distant memories. So, responding to popular demand... I've attached a glossary to the podcast show notes, and these track the conversation. Anyway, as you'll hear, Andrew McDougall was central to all these negotiations and their underlying strategy. An economist by training with degrees from University College Dublin and Johns Hopkins Sice, Andrew worked at the Economist Intelligence Unit and for a government agency before joining Fina Gale as head of policy in 2007. He left the government in 2016 to join the European Investment Bank as a vice president for a four-year term, and is today a partner at Strategy and part of PwC. We talked about how he stumbled into the political world, how the Kenny government decided to make a virtue out of necessity, how they leverage good behaviour into concessions, and both tricky and funny moments with Angela Merkel, Jean-Claude Trichet, and Mario Draghi, among others. So I bring you Andrew McDowell. So you had a early career in economic analysis and then moved on to Fine Gael. For any non-Irishman like me, we're always baffled as to how people choose one of the two civil war parties. Um, had you chosen Fine Gael early? And if so, why? Yeah, it is baffling, I think, even to Irish people. And it is, yeah, it's a little bit like football teams rather than ideology. And I think everybody in Ireland, probably at least in the 70s and 80s, who grew up in Ireland, felt a kind of an identity from birth with a, with a certain political party, Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil in particular. 
so yeah it's true i grew up in a finnegal family if you like and my father and mother would have been big finnegal supporters and i had cousins in politics michael mcdowell obviously who was a deputy prime minister who came from finnegal although he split off and went into a different direction with the progressive democrats but i wasn't actively involved in politics you know, through school or even through university and started my career in public service. Although I spent a couple of years in London at the Economist Intelligence Unit, went into public service in Ireland. And actually what brought me into Fine Gael politics was, was sheer chance. I was in Paris, I think it must have been in 2006. I was at an OECD event and was coming back through Charles de Gaulle Airport. And the guy ahead of me in the queue was Enda Kenny who was the opposition leader at the time, leader of Fine Gael, and we just happened to get chatting in the queue for check-in in Charles de Gaulle. I started to share with them. You know, he asked me what I did and what I was doing in Paris, and anybody who knows Enda knows, you know, he, he just absorbs and sucks up information from anybody. You can, everybody's around him, and he's extremely social. So we queued for 20 minutes about and talked about politics and talked about the economy and what I did and some of my concerns about the direction of the economy, you know, from the work I was doing in for the National Competitiveness Council in particular. And then, you know, six months later, when he was preparing for an election, I got a call from him just to say, you know, would I come in, meet him for a cup of coffee in Leinster House? And he wanted to continue the conversation that we'd been having in Charles de Gaulle, given that things were beginning to look a little bit more ominous for the global economy. He wanted to understand the implications for Ireland, and so I did. And yeah, arising out of that, he, he offered me a job. So yeah, I suppose the truth is I wouldn't have done it for another political party, yeah. but I wasn't actively involved in politics, and it was probably only Fine Gael that I would have made that leap from the public service into politics for. Also, one of the, I guess, one of the differentiators historically was Fine Gael had a bit more of a European commitment than Fianna Fáil. Is that something you had early on? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, th- I think that was definitely a feature of my world outlook, if you like. You know, I suppose like a lot of people in my generation growing up in Ireland, you know, we were living in a country in the 80s that was still, you know, very underdeveloped, had but was clearly benefiting already from you know, that move that obviously joining the EU along with the UK and Denmark in 73 and from the kind of more open economic policies that had been started all the way back in the late 50s and 60s by both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. And so, yeah, you know, we grew up wanting that, you know, wanting that kind of international, yeah. more cosmopolitan nature. Ireland was a country, obviously, that was still having that kind of internal debate about kind of conservative Catholic Catholic Ireland and those who were, you know, more interested in a kind of more progressive liberal international outlook in Ireland. And I was definitely, yeah, like most people in my generation in the latter camp. So, but, I, you know, Fine Gael was definitely, I suppose, had positioned itself as a very pro-European party, was at the centre of the EPP, obviously, you know, which gave it a particular kind of access to European politics I, I wouldn't say that was a major point of distinction, though, at the time with Fianna Fáil. But definitely Enda, with Enda in particular, and Richard Bruton, who was also you know very prominent in the party, these were clearly very pro-European, pro-integration politicians with that type of outlook. And that would have been attractive to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were you involved at all in the Nice referendum campaign? No, or? no, not in a big way. And sorry, I think... 
I need to recall, was I working at Fine Gael at the time? Probably yes, but I wasn't heavily involved in the campaign. I think I may have been involved in the second run in, you know, in the repeat exercise in a kind of a cross-party initiative to craft the economic messages around, yeah. obviously, the advantages of Nice. But it wasn't a major part of, it wasn't a major part of my contribution at uh, the time. Okay. Well, I mean, coming to your time at Fine Gael in the policy unit, when you were looking, you were doing, providing economic advice, when you were looking at what was happening in the Irish property sector and the over-leverage there and potential threat to the banking system, did you foresee anything like what happened in the subsequent years? No, what I mean, what I did, but what I did see, and, and my main point of concern at the time, which may have been slightly misdirected in hindsight, was the distortions to the Irish economy from, you know, from the massive expansion in the construction sector. And even in my time in the public service, where I was working, you know, one of the roles I had was the kind of manager of an entity called the National Competitiveness Council, which brought together the public and private sectors and the trade unions and the social partners, you know, into a conversation about the overall state of the economy and the directions. You know, the reports that I effectively wrote, you know, from 2004 onwards, say, were increasingly pointing towards the fact that you know, the model of growth that Ireland enjoyed through the 1990s and early parts of the first decade of this millennium of export-driven, FDI-driven growth were, you know, that it was changing, you know, from about 2004 mm. onwards to being something that was much more driven by domestic consumption and construction investment as well. And we were pointing out the concerns around that, around the fact that the tradable sectors of the economy were increasingly being undermined by the cost escalation as a result of the property boom. What we didn't see was the related, you know, financial vulnerabilities building up in the financial sector. That, I have to say, came to us all as something of a, <laughs> of a shock when the financial system began to implode in 2007, 2008. Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, you weren't alone. You weren't alone mm. in Ireland either, right? <laughs> yeah. Plenty of other countries went through similar things. But can you take us through the two years between the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the introduction of the bank guarantee, the agreement with the Troika while you were on the outside, you know, in opposition? Did the government or the Troika try to involve you or were you deliberately kept out? No, I mean, I'd say Brian Lennon in particular was keen to involve us. <laughs> he wanted everybody in, in, the little, in, blood. in yeah. his little boat. <laughs> and obviously, we were somewhat nervous about getting too involved. And, you know, we wanted, obviously, to maintain our role as the opposition party and, you know, scrutinizing government policy. So we didn't want to take any ownership. But I would have to say Brian Lennon in particular did. I don't think it was just political. I think it was his, in his nature, in his inclination to try and bring everybody on board into, you know, into the scale of the problem that he saw coming. So, you know, he personally gave us a lot of briefings and he always made officials available whenever we wanted anything. He ensured that officials were available to give us the briefings, obviously documents to the greatest extent possible. So no, that wasn't a cause of grievance for us that we were being kept in the dark, you know, over this period of time. You know, we did think the government were making aims of, you know, responding to the crisis and were always on the back foot. You know, we did disagree with the, fundamentally with the direction of policy 
But I wouldn't say that that reflected a deliberate attempt by the government to keep us in the dark, by no means. No. Uh, and I mean, I'm trying to remember now, did you have a good idea in advance of taking office that you were probably going to go into coalition with the Labour Party? And were they as involved as you were, or you as the main opposition took the lead? It's difficult to know because, I, you know, they may well have been getting their own briefings and contacts. I mean, I think Brian Lennon and Michael Noonan and Richard Bruton to a certain extent before Michael. So Michael took over as finance spokesman in opposition, you know, summer of 2010. And prior to that, it was Richard. But Michael in particular had a good relationship with Brian Lennon, probably a better relationship with Brian Lennon than Joan Burton had, who was the Labour finance spokesperson at the time. So I think that probably meant, you know, Brian was, Brian Lennon was calling Michael probably, you know, on a regular basis just to keep him in the loop. But having said that, you know, I mean, our opposition to the government's policies was pretty full-throated. You know, there was no holding back, you know, from the opposition that we expressed to the way, you know, Anglo in particular was being dealt with through recapitalization without without nationalization to the establishment of NAMA. And then eventually over the course of 2010, you know, we started to articulate much more clearly our concerns around, you know, the fact that the losses, you know, when it became very clear that the capital in these banks was not going to be sufficient to absorb the losses that were going to occur and that the taxpayer was on the hook, we became very critical then at the time of how obviously both subordination and senior debt was not being sucked in to take some of the pain. We also opposed NAMA, you know, pretty vociferously. I mean, in hindsight, you know, I think some of the arguments we constructed against NAMA proved not, our fears did not, were not fully realized. I mean, the biggest fear around NAMA, or two fears around NAMA was, you know, the sheer inability to value the assets being transferred. Mm. I, mean, I mean, nobody had any idea how much these things were worth and if, if they were going to be worth anything. So it really was a kind of, we, everybody knew it was a pig in a poke as to, you know, how much you transfer over, how much you force the banks to write down, you know, the valuation methods were totally just arbitrary. But the second concern, and I think this was probably the more valid concern at the time, but that actually interestingly did not fully transpire was the relationship it would create between the state and obviously the borrowers of the banks, the developers. You know, what we really worried about was, would this institution have the institutional independence and protection that it needed, you know, to make fully independent and, you know, aggressive decisions to protect the taxpayer in terms of the workout of these loans. And, you know, and that was a concern because, you know, there was at the time, you know, a very strong public belief that politicians had become way too close to, you know, a lot of the people who were in hock to the banks and, you know, would they find a way to kind of get soft deals at the expense of the taxpayer? In fairness, I think the way the institution was constructed in the end, and if, you know, and I will say this shamelessly, you know, the fact that we came into power and protected that independence <laughs> meant in the end, I think that NAMA did a pretty good job of, you know, of getting bloods out of stones where, where, where it was possible. And it wasn't always possible. So I think in the end, you know, we were right to oppose, I think, the nature of the guarantee and the fact that it protected unnecessarily, still in my view, a lot of the creditors of the banks. We were right about that. 
but maybe in hindsight, you know, our criticisms of NAMA were overdone. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think everybody thinks the decision on the bail-in was mistaken, yeah. well, including the Europeans themselves a couple of years later with the Spanish, right? But we'll come back to that. That's right. So by the time you were negotiating with Labour on a coalition agreement, did you already have a clear idea of how much policy discretion you'd have? I'm thinking in particular of Michael Noonan's visit to Trichet within a week of taking office and asking for a bail-in of the senior bondholders. You thought that was still a possibility at the time? Yeah, yeah, we did. I mean, sorry, what we knew is there was disagreements within the Troika, mm. you know, on the issue. I mean, that was, so we had a lot of meetings with the Troika only towards the end of 2010, actually. I mean, it was, you know, it was really only after, just before and after the, the first program was agreed in November 2010 that we began to engage with the Troika. And obviously everybody at that stage was anticipating a change of government. Nobody knew it would come quite as quickly as it did mm. in February 2011, but everybody was anticipating it. So the Troika made a decision with the, you know, knowledge and support of the government, you know, to keep us in the loop. And so we had a good idea, you know, of that there was issues, you know, differences of opinion between ECB and IMF with commission kind of in the middle and that it was certainly worth pushing, you know, that we would have some support within the Troika to push for a more favorable deal, you know, after we came into government. Now, it was also being made very clear to us that some parts of the Troika, obviously, and the ECB made us very clear would oppose, but we still thought it was worth worth an effort. We also thought we had some international support on it. And that's obviously was the background to yeah, mm. Michael raising the issue with the ECB. And more generally, did you feel you had discretion to move away from some of the parts of the program that the previous government had agreed? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, we did, mm. you know, so we did change parts of the program, obviously, in the areas of kind of, you know, in some less contentious areas for the creditors, you know, such as the nature of the fiscal program, mm. Some of the structural reforms we changed, some things we strengthened, you know, we did. You know, so if you look at the Finnegal Manifesto and policy documents, long before the bailout was agreed, you know, we were proposing to do things that, you know, were even tougher perhaps than what, you know, the bailout program itself agreed. But we also secured, you know, some areas that were important, uh, concessions in areas that were very important to labor. So, you know, we pushed back the fiscal consolidation effectively by a year, you know, hitting the 3% deficit target from 2014 to 2015. There was areas where the Troika agreed that if we sold some assets and we, you know, we ended up privatizing not a lot, but a few bits and pieces that we could use the funds kind of for extra investment, for stimulus. Some of these things were more symbolic than anything else to show the public, you know, and that we had some control over our affairs and that, you know, we had some capacity to improve the previous deal. But it was true. On the banking side, there was much more reluctance to reopen particularly, you know, on the part of the European Central Bank. And we had some very fierce debates and discussions with the ECB on the issue. Was that very much driven by the president or was it the president plus the legal service? I think plus some of the more Bundesbank elements. Yeah, I think it was more the Bundesbank elements. Maybe the legal service, I'm not sure. But Jorgen Stark in particular was obsessed by the issue and, and you know was quite emotional in some cases by the issue and you know that this was ireland's problem you know ireland had not had failed to adequately regulate and supervise its financial institutions ireland was causing financial instability for europe rather than <laughs> the other way around and that you know 
ECB was being very generous in even funding the Irish banks when they may be insolvent. And that if we, you know, move down the road of bailing in senior or even junior bondholders, this would signal that the Irish banks were insolvent and the ECB cannot fund hmm. insolvent banks. You know, our counter argument, of course, was, you know, we want to make we want to make the banks more solvent. <laughs> and, you know, and the usual moral arguments about why should we you know, the taxpayer take on, you know, mm. liabilities incurred by the private sector. But no, it didn't, you know, it didn't wash. And they were very, you know, they were genuinely worried about financial instability mm. and, you know, the knock-on effect, obviously, of the senior debt becoming bailable in and the effect that would have on funding costs, you know, for banks around Europe. So, I mean, they, what they were, and we understood that. We understood they were very concerned about the systemic implications of what we were proposing to do. And we kept on saying and putting on the table, of course, if you don't want to do it, just to do this, I mean, we basically said we're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to have a resolution, you know, of Anglo in particular, or we're going to recapitalize, but we're going to, as part of the recapitalization, we're going to announce a bail-in. If you don't, like, we're very happy that somebody else would take the cost. If you think, you know, there's a systemic pan-European issue to be paid for a public good, we're very happy to be part of that, but... Somebody's got to write the check, you know. <laughs> but of course, you, you know, they're like, <laughs> and, you know, there is no instrument available for you to do that. And, you know, the only offer they were making was to continue to provide, obviously, liquidity mm. and to kind of not to be too legalistic about, you know, the quality of our collateral and, you know, and all of that. And the emergency, uh, the LA, obviously, that we could provide, they turn a blind eye to and so on and so forth. So this went on for, you know, several weeks, late February, March, I think into in, even into April, I need to recollect the dates until, you know, literally right up to the point when we announced the recapitalization of Anglo. And we literally were dealing with this. I mean, I remember end, it was end going down to the, the floor of the house to announce the details. And we were, I was writing two speeches, you know, that morning, you know, one were burning the bondholders and one were not, you know, and a couple of conversations with Trichet, so did Michael. And eventually I remember that Trichet called from Japan he must have been at some G7, G8 meeting. And this is on the morning. This is like 12 o'clock, you know, we're making a two o'clock announcement. We called and it was a very odd call because he was put through by the private secretary to end his office. He called, you know, some line and he was got through to the private secretary. The private secretary told Enda, obviously, he was on the line. Enda called me, he said, come down quickly. He's about to talk. So Enda picks up the phone eventually and says, you know, President Trichet, we're listening, you know, and he says, I've just spoken to my executive board and we can tell you right now that we are fundamentally opposed to the bailing in of, of Anglo senior debt. And obviously anything of that nature would raise questions over the solvency of Anglo. And as you know, we only fund solvency institutions. So the message was very clear, but it was very, and he basically then said, that's the message. Thank you. Goodbye. You know, and he put, and he sent the phone. And but an hour later, Patrick Hanahan called me and he said, Trichet called you, right? And I said, yeah, my, yeah, my, myself and Enda just listened to him and he just, uh, you know, announced this message and put the phone down. He said, was Enda there? I said, yeah, yeah, of course he was, you know. 
he said, Trisha didn't know. And was, <laughs> he, he thought he was just talking to you. <laughs> he thought he'd be slightly more polite. He would. He said, he said he would have been slight, slight, maybe a little bit, slightly more, but he didn't know the prime minister was on the other end of the line. <laughs> He said he wanted just to talk to you because he didn't want to have a conversation. <laughs> he just wanted to cut it short. Yeah, yeah. So we backed down. We couldn't put a risk. A major conflagration and confrontation with the ECB over the funding of Irish banks. You know, there would have been a run on the banks. So we backed down and we started again. And then that's when we began to seriously look for interest rate reductions as kind of compensation, you know, interest rate reductions on the bailout loans. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. In my previous interviews with officials on the other side of the table, there's a consensus that Ireland was a model program country, that you took action quickly, fully, and took ownership of the program. Was that an internal decision, even if you disagreed with the Troika position, and as you've made clear you did sometimes? Was it a, a an advanced decision that full compliance would pay off? Yes, it was. Yeah. And you know, that was very much something we agreed internally within Fine Gael in the run into the 2011 election. And then, you know, confirmed with Labour in February 2011 after the elections in the course of the negotiations to form the coalition government, that there was no political or economic mileage from us in criticising the Troika publicly. And, you know, our intention was obviously you know, to use the, the goodwill and support that we could generate as a new government to try and improve, obviously, the deal to the greatest extent possible, but that we would do that behind the scenes and that in public we would be, you know, and the message to the markets would be very clear, which is, you know, we are delivering on the program and our intention is obviously to fulfill the conditions and restore growth. And that by and large was the case throughout. I mean, obviously the media always sniff out, you know, areas where there was disagreements. And I, I guess they were well aware of what we were looking for in terms of the change of conditions around Anglo in particular and the senior bondholders. But it was never something that we articulated publicly because obviously, you know, we didn't see any advantage in having a public spat with the Troika on, on the bailout changes. And I think by and large, that was, you know, I think that was that approach was validated over time. We didn't get everything we wanted initially in terms of the changes. But obviously, the perception that Ireland was doing the right thing was willing to obviously take the pain that was necessary to deliver against the bailout conditions did pay off politically for us, mm. you know, in the more medium term in terms of other concessions that were made over time, such as obviously the interest rate reductions and the promissory notes in particular. I was going to come to that. Do, do you think that sort of goodwill that you built up was one of the reasons you were able to shake off the promissory notes within two years before another very hefty payment? Can you talk us through that negotiation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think there's any way that we would have got the arrangement around the promissory notes agreed. You know, if there had been a perception on the other side of the table and within the ECB in particular, that we weren't serious about implementing the rest of the programme. You know, so it took effectively two years to build up that credibility, you know, and, and give a lot of credit, obviously, to Michael Noonan in particular for building that rapport over time with the UCB, which, you know, as we've discussed earlier, started quite mm. badly mm. in terms of that relationship. But he obviously put a lot of effort into building that, obviously, particularly with Draghi after he came in as president and built up a very strong rapport. And obviously backed up then, not just by fine words, but by the actions that we took as a government to just put our heads down and, and implement what was agreed. 
even still, you know, the promissory note discussion was a very, very difficult discussion. And this is certainly where, you know, the lawyers of the ECB were deeply involved, you know, on many occasions, deeply uncomfortable with what was being proposed. You know, this was very much our proposal. You know, this was something we put on the table and it wasn't something that kind of organically grew out of, you know, out of a dialogue with them. This was something we we kind of cooked up ourselves and said, this is what we want to happen. And, you know, and initially that was... You know, they were always willing to negotiate, to discuss, but there was definitely no kind of sign from the ECB, you know, in the first kind of three to four months of that discussion that they would entertain the idea. And it really did require, you know, very strong political lobbying to get that, you know, to get that over the de- over the line. And in a way, I suspect, and I can only speculate around this, I think this is what Draghi really wanted us mm. to do, was to create a kind of political inevitability around this, a political pressure on him and his institution to do it, mm. you know, because he, you know, he just felt, you know, if this came out of the blue and ECB just signed off on something of this nature, there would have been something of a backlash, particularly in Berlin. So we needed to put a lot of effort into, you know, lobbying European capitals, Paris and Rome in particular, and obviously a lot of engagement with the top levels of the ECB to generate support for this. I remember in particular a uh, one meeting we had, it must have been late, late 2012 in Brussels at a European Council meeting that Enda was at and Michael was invited because we had arranged a meeting with uh, President Draghi he invited us to his office in the Justice Lips building where the council was having. And obviously the ECB president had had an office there and he invited us to come and discuss the issue with him. It was quite late at night, like all these meetings were. But uh, (laughs) Enda basically started the meeting by President Draghi was sitting at the table with us and, you know, there was a blank wall behind him and he said, have a look now at the wall behind you. And, you know, Draghi looked over his shoulder, somewhat puzzled, and went, you know, there's nothing there. And, and it went, exactly. There needs to be something on this wall behind you. There needs to be a plaque. I can see it now. And Draghi was getting more and more confused, going, Enda, what, what? I thought we were here to talk about the promissory note. And Enda said, yes, but there needs to be a plaque, I think, because I would like to see a plaque, and we'll have a constructed saying, it was in this office that President Draghi saved Ireland. <laughs> and, you know, as laughable as it is, you could actually see Draghi's eyes kind of light up. He looked behind him and he could, you know, he could see the plaque. <laughs> is it there now? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I hope it is. And there definitely was, you know, there was a good rapport, goodwill. And you could see, you know, Draghi's problem was not that he didn't want to do it, not that he didn't want to support Ireland, but he needed to bring his own institution over the line mm. on this. And he needed to construct a very delicate, careful story. And, you know, the details and the nuances in the announcement would be, you know, were something that he had to pay very careful attention to. Anyway, we, you know, we went through still quite a few bumps. And, you know, between there and was it, you know, I have to remind myself of the dates, but probably February 2013 when yeah. the deal was done. And again, quite, you know, quite a dramatic, you know, couple of days into announcing that final deal, you know, which required obviously that the governing council of the ECB note 
you know, the intention of the Irish government to do this, not approve it, notes the intention, which was enough, obviously, to signal to the markets that what we were doing had the tacit support of the ECB. And it had quite a very, you know, a very positive market reaction, which, which really did set us then on the path towards exiting the bailout. I think once we got the promissory deal done, there was no longer any questions in our mind, really, as to whether we'd be able to exit the bailout at the end of 2013. You know, we we saw the yields come down, we saw the market reaction, and it was quite clear that that was a the vital milestone to getting us out of the bailout. Do you think that crucial to that was the crisis the Spanish ran into the year earlier, in that they'd had a similar banking crisis caused by uh, property over-leveraging, and they'd been given actually much better terms than you had. There'd been nothing like this kind of early repayment for banks where there'd been no senior bail-in. So was that crucial to it? I think there was two things that were crucial. First of all, yeah, there was a realisation, you know, and an acknowledgement that Spain had been given better terms and that the political debate around, you know, bail-in had changed mm. over that period of time. And in particular, the Germans had come around to the idea of bail-in in a very strong, you know, from being initially extremely cautious and hostile about anything that threatened the stability of the financial system to a more almost ideological perspective, which is, yeah, um, what on earth are taxpayers doing bailing out banks and financial institutions? And they suddenly became, you know... With the, well, that was their position the, in Cyprus, wasn't it? Very much. Absolutely. Yeah. They had the zeal of the converted yeah. all of a sudden over the course of 2020 that, you know, that there had to be bail-in before there'd be public support. So it was quite a turnaround from, mm. you know, our first discussion and I think it was because, you know, the Germans began to realize the scale of potential problems just couldn't all be underwritten by the European taxpayer and, you know, and then ultimately the German taxpayer, you know, which was underwriting everything. So that was one thing that had changed. I think the other thing that had changed is because Spain had got into trouble in between, you know, Europe needed a win very badly, you know, needed a success story. And Ireland was the only candidate mm-hmm. on the table for a success story. So the pressure grew on the ECB that politically, that something, you know, without capitals getting involved in the technical details, something needed to be done. And Ireland had to come out of the bailout. And from, you know, while Berlin was obviously always tricky around ECB independence and obviously, you know, not financing government and so on, I believe the signals from Berlin to Frankfurt were very clear. Ireland has to come out of the bailout. Mm. And we do not want a second bailout for Ireland. And everybody's got to be on board. And so I think that was heard. It's funny because I do remember at the time, there was very much an assumption for all of the crisis countries that there was no way they were going to be these clean exits. And there were for pretty much everyone, right? Except the Greeks. And they eventually achieved it. We had long discussions, yeah, about whether we'd have a, you know, over the course of the late 2013, about whether there'd be a precautionary credit line for Ireland as part of the bailout exit. And and our own authorities, you know, the Department of Finance and TMA, Central Bank, were very keen on a precautionary credit line for Ireland, you know, as part of it, as a, as a kind of insurance policy that the markets would recognize that there's we're fully funded already, so, you know, get the yields down. But the Germans were, as we know, were extremely extremely hostile, and they'd have to go back to the Bundestag to get it approved. They didn't, you know, they thought it'd be a a sign of failure, that, mm. you know, and everything that they had said about Ireland would be undone by going back to the Bundestag and saying, well, actually, we need 
not necessarily cash, but we need, you know, a commitment, a guarantee to Ireland that they'll get funding if the markets don't fund them. They were adamant that that would not be the case. And I remember we had a meeting with Chancellor Merkel, myself and Enda Kenny in Paris at a an event that President Hollande put together, an employment, a social unemployment conference of some description in Paris, I think at the Elysee, and he brought together European leaders to talk. He didn't want to talk about the banking crisis, he wanted to talk about the social crisis as a result of the financial crisis and everything that was being done in terms of labour market activation and getting training and so on, which was a good thing to do. But on the margins of that, you know, we were in the midst of this debate about whether we'd have a precautionary credit line as part of the exit. And we wanted to have a a bilateral with Chancellor Merkel. And she agreed. And we were literally just sitting around the the table. Enda was at the table. I was sitting behind him. And she literally walked around the table and tapped him on the shoulder and said, come on, we'll go out to the corridor. and We'll we'll just have a chat in the corridor at the back, you know, about about your exit strategy. And so I went out with Enda. And it was just the three of us in a corridor and she said, look, you know, she described the political situation that she faced and, you know, and she complimented Enda and everything he'd done and don't throw this down the drain now. Don't damage your reputation by asking for something that we can't give because that's just going to cause a huge problem to the markets as well. If you ask for this and I end up going to the Bundestag and can't get it, I mean, where do we all... And that was, a, you know, it was a good point. And of course, Enda said, well... You know, my all my economic advisors, including this fellow here, you know, he's saying, they're all saying we need the protection of a precautionary credit line to smooth our path back out. And uh, this is a, you know, this is about ensuring the success story continues. And of course, he knew, you know, she probably wasn't going to offer it. So he said at the end, he said, and of, but of course, maybe there's other things, you know. <laughs> you could see she was like... <laughs> what do you have in mind? You know? <laughs> and so not quite, but he almost, you know, he took out his list, <laughs> his shopping list. And, you know, at the top of the list was we were setting up a thing called the Strategic Banking Corporation of Ireland, which was a, you know, for the first time a state, you know, a national promotional bank to fund SMEs, you know, because SMEs were credit starved through the crisis. The banks still weren't lending and it needed funding, you know, and so he said, well, wouldn't it be lovely? You know, it's a like KFW, wouldn't, you know, maybe KFW might like to support the institution. And she went, okay. <laughs> she said, fine, we'll put our officials together. We'll work it out. And they did. Yeah, that was the deal we did, was that we accepted she wouldn't have to go back to the Bundestag, and but that there'd be other measures. You know, I mean, I'm not saying these other measures were necessarily huge market moving events but what they did show was continued political you know strong political support from germany mm. she even sent over you know the finance minister what's his name schäuble schäuble yeah she sent him over to dublin to announce the kfw support for ireland and it sent all the right political signals yeah and i, I guess by that time whatever it takes and someone had done its work and there was it was just a much more calm environment than you had anticipated when you were saying that you needed transitional support yeah, yeah, yeah. true the markets were in a good reasonably good position at the time yeah and we were still nervous going back up but it, you know increasingly we began to pre-fund 2014 with ntma issue issuances towards the end of 2013 and you know it was becoming everybody was beginning to relax yeah mm. Once you were out of the program, you had problems and no one implicitly to blame. You know, there was no external creditor. Well, there was, but not on an ongoing basis. 
And you still had to do your on your spending cuts. You had the protests over the Irish water. And you were suddenly responsible for all the decisions by the banks you now owned. So did you feel liberated outside the program or, or was it a scary world? Um, I think we still felt very pleased that we were no longer, you know, having kind of quarterly meetings with the Troika, you know, to agree what's what. I, I mean, you know, I mean, it, there was a, a kind of sense of restoration of national sovereignty in a way. I mean, limited as it is in the world that we live in. But even so, I think for the Labour Party, for ourselves, that was a source of a sense of accomplishment. Hmm. Now, was there things possibly we should have done while the Troika were still around? Absolutely. You know, that, and you know, there's no doubt it took us too long to, you know, get Irish water up and running to get the charging system in place. And it would have been politically much more convenient to do it while they were still there. And we probably would have had less of a political backlash and public backlash. When that wasn't the case, we then, you know, there was a kind of, and perhaps this was me in particular, I did feel that if we backtracked, so if we diluted policies that we had announced, including water charging, fiscal consolidation, as soon as the Troika had gone, I just felt it would have severely damaged us in terms of our credibility, our reputation, that, you know, we only ever, you know, because we always said we were doing this not for the Troika, we were doing this for Ireland, you know, and for to restore economic sovereignty and, and growth and prosperity. If we just then suddenly said, well, actually, you know, we didn't mean any of that, you know, I think not only would it have been viewed very cynically at home, you know, at home, but obviously internationally, it would have been severely damaged our reputation. But it would have been better for us politically if we'd got it done quicker while the Troika were still there. There's no doubt about that. Mm. And for Labour in particular, you know, it hurt them very badly, water charges in particular. And obviously there was the local elections then in June 2014 where... We all suffered badly, but Labour in particular yeah. obviously faced a bit of a wipeout at the local elections. Yeah. Looking back on the programme institutionally, how do you think it worked? You know, Not only did you have to deal with the Troika mission chiefs, but nothing got agreed without having the big countries, particularly the Germans, on board. And you had to do this intra-ECB negotiation over yeah. promissory notes and so on. Do you think it could have worked better? Well, sorry, I mean, there's obviously a big question about the overall you know, policy directions of Europe and the Troika mm. at the time, you know, was fiscal consolidation the right strategy for Europe at the time? And look, honestly, I think in retrospect, it's difficult to say it was a great policy that Europe engaged in European-wide fiscal consolidation at the time that the financial system was was contracting so severely. You know, so I think most economic historians will look back in the period and say Europe, you know. And the United States, but particularly Europe, should have taken a different, a different approach. I mean, no, nobody ever knows, obviously, what the counterfactual would have been, but I think there was ideological mistakes made. Now, for Ireland, you know, there is this debate, you know, and you still have people writing in Ireland that, that we could have taken a different approach all on our own, and of course, that's ludicrous. You know, for us to have taken a different approach would have required somebody to somebody else to lend us the money. <laughs> The markets weren't lending us the money. So who was going to fund this different approach in terms of fiscal policy if it wasn't the Troika? Nobody's ever answered that question to my satisfaction. So we, so the only strat viable strategy we had as a country 
was even if we disagreed with you know the politics coming out of Brussels and Berlin and even to a certain extent Washington and certainly London at the time, you know, for us to keep getting the checks every three months to keep public services running, we had to toe the line and we had to navigate the best possible deal within that context. And that included obviously the imposition of fiscal consolidation. So, I mean, that's at the level of the kind of, you know, the overall policy policy framework. And I think we did exactly the right thing. And I think it's, you know, there is a certain revisionism that we had a lot more kind of discretion and autonomy than we did. Now, institutionally, how did it work? You know, I'm very glad that the IMF was there, to be frank. And, you know, they brought not just probably deeper economic expertise, and in fairness, I mean, there was a reason for that. They've been doing it for 50 years, you know. I mean, this was new to Brussels and new to Frankfurt. So, but they also brought a much greater sense of realpolitik with them. And again, that's from having done this for 56 years in terms of what's important and what's not, you know. And they were very relaxed on the small things that were politically important to us, but that from their perspective didn't make much of a difference. And, you know, and they were accommodating and they also obviously were very sympathetic towards our views on on the banking system. But on fiscal consolidation, they were probably as adamant as the others on the need to pay, fix the public finances. But we were very glad they were there. You know, and I know there's a lot of debates about their role in Greece, and I can't speak to that. But I have to say, in the Irish case, they brought pragmatism, wisdom, depth, and political sensitivity. Mm. And... It's not that, not uh, in fairness to the European Commission, I think the European Commission played a kind of, had a difficult role to play because they were kind of in the middle between ECB and the IMF. The question I always had in my mind is, what was the ECB doing at the table? You know, what, what you know, were they not our central bank? <laughs> you know, it's quite understandable that if the Commission were lending us money, you know, and the IMF were lending us money, they should be at the table. But the ECB was our central bank. I always had a question in my mind about where does that leave us that our central bank is sitting on the other side of the table? Mm. It might have been better, I think, in terms of the institutional dynamics if they hadn't been. But that's, again, you know, I think the idea in the future is obviously that that wouldn't be the case and the ESM would obviously be taken care of. Yeah. Taken care of that. It was all quite improvised, really, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, I've got a couple of questions on personnel issues, really. On the appointment of Philip Lane as uh, central bank governor, were you involved in that? And when, if and when you were, was part of the calculation an aim to get him into Frankfurt? Or was that? I mean, I was involved. I mean, it was Michael Noonan's decision. And I don't think, you know, there was no imposition of him upon Michael. That was very much Michael's call. And I have to say we were supportive. Not so much because we thought this would be a stepping stone for an Irish nominee into Frankfurt, although that was always a possibility given his kind of intellectual reputation. No, it was more we just thought he would be a just very well qualified, very good successor to Patrick. And, you know, I guess after Patrick, you know, Patrick was very good for Ireland's reputation, you know, was the source of great confidence from the markets and internationally that somebody's sensible. So you want, you know, it was just who could fill those shoes. And, you know, Philip certainly intellectually had the capacity to do that. So, no, I wouldn't say it was a very 
we anticipated, you know, the different steps that Philip would go through. No, no, it was just we felt he was mm-hmm. had the gravitas and intellectual ability to take on the role. I mean, there was obviously other candidates for it who also were very impressive. So he had strong competition. And I know Michael, you know, weighed up, definitely weighed up other candidates in terms of people who might be a little bit more political in some ways than mm-hmm. Philip. But in the end, he decided that there was enough politicians in Frankfurt and somebody, an economist might be, might, might help the place. That's, yeah, that's true. Well, the other personnel issues is yourself back in 20, was it 2020, where you were nominated potentially as a European commissioner because Phil Hogan was standing down. What was that process like? Was it long? And I know that you had an interview with President von der Leyen. Was Yeah. No, it was very short, actually. It was a very short process. And, you know, firstly, I mean, I have to say I was gutted for Phil Hogan and in terms of what happened to him, which I think in many ways was brutally unfair and, you know, an overreaction. And he was a great commissioner for Ireland yeah. and a great commissioner for Europe. You know, he was a real heavy hitter. Namorada is a great replacement and she's doing a great job on the financial services agenda. But I was very happy to put my name forward. I mean, you know, so, you know, when this, ha- you know, the commission asked or the President von der Leyen asked for two candidates, a man and a woman. Huh? To be frank, you know, I think I was the token man. So, <laughs> and, but I was, that was, I was okay with You're that. that. I was okay with that. And, you know, I knew the score going into that process that I'd need to do a pretty spectacular job in the interview, you know, to change the expectations that everybody had about what the outcome was going to be. But I was happy to give it a shot. And it didn't do me any harm whatsoever because I was already finished at the IB. I hadn't yet obviously started in uh, PwC. They hadn't approached me at that stage. And so it was no, you know, it was no skin off my nose just to put myself out there as a candidate. And I did an interview, yeah. And remote did the interview here from Luxembourg because there was a COVID issue. And she gave me a great opportunity to present myself. And, you know, we had a good hour and she was very detailed in terms of what I'd done in Ireland, what I'd done at the EIB. And then she was very gracious to call me the next day and to explain her decision. We decided to go with someone else. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So I was disappointed, but not entirely surprised. Okay. Well, Andrew, thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks.